We do not describe the world we see, but we see the world we describe. Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. I'm guessing that most listeners have heard the following quote that has been attributed to several different sources, so I'm not actually sure who said it first. We don't see the world as it is, but as we are. While I don't remember the first time I heard that, I recall that it struck me and that it also made complete sense to me. The second I place a pair of glasses over my eyes. How the world appears to me will be dependent on the lenses within the frames. The level of clarity or of distortion will relate directly to the lenses. I've always been fascinated with perception itself and people's different ways of seeing things, and especially fascinated with how differing perceptions either enhance or undermine a relationship. One of the things I distinctly recall when I attended my first NVC workshop with Marshall Rosenberg was how different the world suddenly appeared to me. It happened so rapidly. One day I was living in the world, seeing it in a particular way. The next day, things had radically shifted. I mean radically. I was seeing through new eyes. I loved how the world appeared to me after I'd spent my first day with Marshall. I loved how this new way of seeing unlocked a capacity within me that I didn't know was there. It made me realize just how much I contributed to the outcome of any given interaction. Not that I had the power to change another person, but I certainly had the power to shape my own responses and manner of engagement. I was in my early 40s at the time, and it meant a great deal to me. Before I met Marshall, I had purchased a book by Joseph Jaworski titled Synchronicity, The Inner Path of Leadership. I remember highlighting one of the paragraphs in that book. As I considered the importance of language and how human beings interact with the world, It struck me that in many ways, the development of language was like the discovery of fire. It was such an incredible primordial force. I had always thought that we use language to describe the world. Now I was seeing that this is not the case. To the contrary, it is through language that we create the world because it's nothing until we describe it. And when we describe it, we create distinctions that govern our actions. To put it another way, we do not describe the world we see, but we see the world we describe. I want to say here that I appreciate this quote. My only objection, though, is where Jaworski says the world is nothing until we describe it. I personally believe the world is fully alive, irrespective of my ability or inability to describe it. I fully agree, though, that we do not describe the world we see, but we see the world we describe. The first step of the NVC process, which is called observation, is to clearly describe what we see. Now, if you've ever watched Marshall Rosenberg working with an audience, 
What at first seems like a very simple exercise is quickly discovered to be difficult. The exercise is this. You want to have a conversation with someone about something that has troubled you about your relationship with them. Write down what that person has said or done that you haven't enjoyed. Here are some typical responses to that question. My partner doesn't listen to me. My partner criticizes me regularly. My boss is insulting. My parents judge me harshly. My son disrespects me. My neighbor spreads gossip about me. As you might guess, none of these assertions constitute a clear description of what is actually happening. And even though words don't have any concreteness to them, they certainly have tremendous impact. By thinking and speaking, we set things into motion. If I believe my partner doesn't listen to me, I'm setting the stage for certain things to follow. I start to expect that he or she won't listen, and I become ever watchful for all the ways in which they don't listen. Maybe the person is reading a book, and I start talking to them about my plans for the day. Since they don't suddenly put their book down and give me their full attention, I decide they don't listen to me. I gather as much evidence as I can. I begin to modify my way of engaging. I either increase my volume and scream or silence myself altogether. And when I do either of these two things, a dynamic between myself and the other person begins to emerge and over time it calcifies. Notice how in the example I've provided, the person who says their partner doesn't listen doesn't also include in their narrative the way they have interrupted their partner while their partner was engaged in an activity. Notice the difference between my partner doesn't listen to me and my partner doesn't immediately turn to me when I interrupt him while he's doing something. There's a difference, isn't there? And quite often people only report the part of the story that aligns with their own narrative. Now, This isn't to say that there aren't times when the other person doesn't have a negative role in a dynamic. Quite often they do. It's simply to say that our own communication styles and ways of seeing will play a significant role in how things unfold. Our ways of seeing and engaging are ours to examine, to monitor, and adjust as we journey through life. That's the work. So, I'm returning to the opening quote, we don't see the world as it is, but as we are. So far, I've described what occurs in the interpersonal realm between people, but our ways of seeing the world outside of human relating also greatly impact us in terms of our personal understandings and expectations. For instance, If your worldview is that you should feel on top of the world most of the time, and anything that gets in the way of that must be obliterated, this will impact how you function and how you engage. If your worldview is that grief is a sign of weakness and has no place in your life, your relationships with your loved ones will be strained when tragedies occur, and tragedies will occur. If your worldview is that having your needs met, as you would define having them met, is something that you are entitled to, 
then you're going to be a real drag to be around when you don't get what you want. How our minds are shaped by the stories we're fed from birth, coming from our families of origin, our education systems, our faith, our culture, our political leaders, our news reporters, the social media feeds. I'm not sure we can actually claim to be crafting our own personal identities, given that we are so much on the receiving end of countless influences that infiltrate our lives. How can we know that the identity we may feel so strongly about is really nothing more than an amalgamation of a continuous stream of forces and influences coming towards us at lightning speed, some of which cling to us while others bounce off? Is it possible that we are in fact more a result of time and location than we are a result of pure emergent self? I'm pretty sure that had I been born in another part of the world or during a different time, I'd be a completely different person than I am today. Time and place shape us. And our ability to ask questions about our experience is where we can intervene. Who am I really? What do I genuinely care for? What do I owe this world that has granted me my life? Am I being relational? How clearly do I see what's happening? What stories am I generating about what's happening? In what ways do my stories help or hinder my ability to be in relationship? How do I deepen my belonging to the world? You get the drift. There are a multitude of questions that we can routinely ask ourselves to deepen our lives and deepen our ways of relating. To conclude this episode, I offer a story that relates directly to the power we have to question and change how we see. An aging Hindu master grew tired of his apprentice complaining, and so one morning sent him for some salt. When the apprentice returned, the master instructed the unhappy young man to put a handful of salt in a glass of water and then to drink it. How does it taste? the master asked. Bitter, said the apprentice as he spit it out. The master chuckled and then asked the young man to take another handful of salt and accompany him to the lake. The two walked in silence to the nearby lake, and once the apprentice swirled his handful of salt in the lake water, the old man said, Now, drink from the lake. As the water dripped down the young man's chin, the master asked, How does it taste? Fresh, remarked the apprentice. Do you taste the salt? asked the master. No, said the young man. At this, the master sat beside the serious young man who so reminded him of himself and took his hands, offering the following. The pain of life is pure salt, no more, no less. The amount of pain in life remains exactly the same. However, The amount of bitterness we taste depends on the container we place the pain in. So when you are in pain, the only thing you can do is to enlarge your sense of things. Stop being a glass. Become a lake. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. 
For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous. Thank you.